0: We're going to be uh, concluding. This is the last Sunday in November, and we've been taking a look thus far. And, and we've been taking a look at the passage in John, chapter 14, verse 15, that says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. If. If you love me. If is, is a condition. It's a contingent. It has a dependent on something else. And he says, let me ask you, anybody here love Jesus? All All right, 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 all right. If you do love Jesus, John states, Jesus states in John, he says, then we will do what he's told us to do. It's a command. It's a directive. In other words, it's not just verbal, but there's some action that has to take place. And so this afternoon, what we're going to do is we're going to get into this word in a second here, and I just want to get a greater understanding or insight, and I want to know what is he asking us to do? What does God want us to do? Amen? Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. It says this, it says, love not the world. Do not love the world. Don't love it. Neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father. But is of the world. One more passage here. Genesis chapter three, verse six, it says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And for a little bit of time this afternoon, I'm going to preach to you. I want to admonish you. I want to compel you. I want to challenge you to desire greater things. Desire greater things. Whatever the situation or circumstance that you're in right now, you've got to get to a point where you get dissatisfied with being dissatisfied. You've got to desire greater things. That your circumstances right now, you say, "This, this, this can't be it. This cannot be it. There has to be something more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, we, the spirit of thanks in this place, Lord, for what you've already done, Lord Jesus, where you've brought us from, God. And I pray right now for your anointing. I pray for the ability to articulate, Lord Jesus, your word from your throne room to the, your people here, Lord, for the edification of everybody here, Lord. I pray against any stronghold, Lord, against all those that have come over the highways and byways into this place, Lord, that this sea would go forth and find, find deep ground, to grow up, to sprout up, to begin to be a word to us, not just today, but to the rest of the week, the rest of the month. Lord, I pray right now that there will be a hunger and a desire for the things that you would have for us. in your right hands are pleasures forevermore. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I'm always amazed this, this time of year. One of the things I, I enjoy is I like the different foods that are placed before us. I like this time of year in November in which, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a smorgasbord of what you can eat and what you can be, be fed and what you can look forward to. There's an aspect of, or of the physiology of the human appetite that I'm intrigued by. You have all your foods. You have your dressings, your cakes, your pies, your stuffings. If you go in the north or in the south, whatever you call it. Okay. But food in general is fascinating. Specifically, the prep work that goes into making meals. You think about everything. If some of you in here are the cooks, some of you here are the consumers. I'm looking at the three of the cooks right there. <laughs> All three of them shaking their head. But eating in general, because they, they, they burn. They burn. Trust me, they burn. But eating, eating in general is, is fascinating because of all the, the, the labor that's put forth into it. You have the, the time that's shopping, selecting the food, the, the ingredients, the time that's cutting, of slicing, of mixing, of blending everything together, followed by the prep time that it takes to cook it. The labor that goes into preparing the food is absolutely astounding. You spend all those hours picking it up and there's some consumers on the other end. One, one right here that, that you put the meal in front of them and within minutes, it took you hours to make. It took you a long time. I've, I've, I've watched you at your house, Sister Brownie. I've watched you while everybody sat down and Sister Brownie was running around here. Throwing potatoes, I need another batch. Throwing potatoes up and down. There's there's something that happens when the person that's on the other side is cooking all of this, and you put it in front of the consumer, and within minutes, it's gone. You have on a platter, you have a, a turkey that just, just the carcass is sitting there like this. The pie pans are empty. The plates are clean. And the consumer sits back satisfied temporarily for the next hour or two. That's about it. But Within, here's the sad part about it. You know, within 24 hours, the body reverts right back to being hungry. Hungry. Within 24 hours. The next day, all of that work, that prepping, that planning, the ingredients, it took more than t- all of that work to put into the mill. And within 24 hours, your body is right back to the previous state. You're hungry. You're hungry. And that sums up the basis of, of most of humanity that operates to extent is it's filled with us running after things to please our senses. We're, we're what you would call sensual. Not sexual, sensual. Sexuality is a form of sensuality in the fact that we we want to fulfill our senses. My physical appetite, my craving, my desires—whether it be an itch or taste that I have for steak—I I, I, I want to hear certain things. I want certain amounts of praise. I want a certain aspect of touch. It's it's sensual. It fulfills my senses, and so our lives are consumed around acquiring and consuming to find out that what we are searching for or what we are after does not fully satisfy because with an after that touch you still want another touch after those words you can give me more words after the meal 24 later 24 hours later you still are hungry just like that Thanksgiving dinner hungry doesn't satisfy. Our opening text is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. And I'm, I'm going to give you some context here before I get into the rest of this text. And I have to give you some backdrop. The writer being John. John's the same, this is the same writer who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John who is the brother of James, this is the disciple of Jesus. This is the same John that wrote. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and wrote the book of Revelations. And he's oftentimes referred to as the disciple of love, primarily because of how many times throughout all of his writings you're going to see the word love appear. John 15, 13 he records Jesus saying, No greater love have no man had than to lay down his life for his friend. He records in John fifteen, seventeen, Jesus he recorded Jesus commanding his disciples to love, have love for one another. John eighteen twenty five. he recorded himself as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so scattered throughout all of John's writings, you're going to hear this principle or an aspect of love. But all of a sudden in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John's going to hit us with a showstopper. John's going to flip the script on us. John's going to change the flow. And he begins by stating, do not love. Don't love. This is John. This is the disciple of love. John's going to tell us, do not love. And there's some things going on in the backdrop of 1 John that you have to understand of why he's writing the way he's writing. First and foremost, there's a false teaching that is being spread throughout the entirety of the church called docetism. Okay, you say, preacher, what's docetism? Well, docetism is actually a false teaching that's rooted in a Greek philosophy called Gnosticism. You say, Preacher, what's Gnosticism? Give me a second there. I'm getting there. Gnost, the Gnostics was a Greek philosophy or idea that simply meant this: that the material world, okay, the things that you can touch, that you can taste, that you can handle, that you can hold, they were evil. And so Gnosticism believed that those things were evil, and they believed that anything that was unseen, anything that you could not see, the spiritual world was in fact that was good. Now, what that had done is that gotten to the point where it began to creep into the church, and it crept into the church in this form of a new false ideology or a heresy called docetism and what docetism produced is it had gotten to the point where they were had teachers in the church that were proclaiming that jesus never actually appeared in the body he never actually died he he only appeared to be a body but he was not actually there And so this is one of the primary thrusts that John is writing to when he writes 1 John, okay? One of the factors when we talk about any false ideology or false teaching is what it does, it takes a kernel of the truth and it begins to run with it to the extent or to the extreme where it actually begins to counteract or contradict any other passage of Scripture. This past week, Many of you know, I don't know if you heard it, but Pastor Carlton Pearson. Anybody right here remember Carlton Pearson? Carlton Pearson, the man who, who had a megachurch down in, I think it was Oklahoma, but he passed away this, this past week. And, and Carlton Pearson was, was famous for, actually he's famous for his latter end, which was he, he took a, a, a strong left turn because his teachings eventually began to teach that there was no hell. And he taught this on the primary premise because he said, if hell is in existence, then it proves that God cannot save all false ideologies, false teachings. And so this is the primary thrust as to what John is writing into and what he's dealing with. This is scattered throughout the entirety of the church. But in the midst of that, one of the things that John is trying to address is this fundamental problem within Christianity and even within humanity is this problem of lust. And he starts out by saying, do not love the world. Do not love the world. And The word for love there he uses is philo. Philo meaning 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 that that friendship love. Philadelphia, the, the love of a friend. Okay, but he uses agape, that that form of the highest form of love later on. John says, "Do not love the world." The word they uses for world there is cosmos. Now, when you understand the cosmos, cosmos is a a broad term, and to actually begin to distill it down into what it actually means is difficult, but cosmos has this idea of the order of the world, how the world Functions, how they operate, the beat of the different drummer. There's a drum. There's 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 a way the world operates. You have to understand how things move, how things go, how things sound. There's a way of the world. That word cosmos is actually the root of where we get the term cosmology from. Cosmology is the study of the origin or the. The coordination, the order of the world, the order of the planets, how things got started. That's cosmos. Cosmos is the root of where we get that term cosmopolitan from. A cosmopolitan is an adjective. It means you describe somebody that's cultured, that's refined. That has many disciplines to them. They have an aspect of them. They have a sophistication to them. Cosmos. Cosmos is actually the root of the term cosmetics. It's where we get the term cosmetics. Makeup. Okay. Makeup is designed to actually put you in a way, and you put it on your face, or cosmetic surgery to put everything in your body in order. It's so it's so the, the, the tones of your skin are even. It's so one eyebrow isn't higher than the other eyebrow. That's cosmetics. It's to make you appear or to adorn you in a certain way so that you are aesthetically pleasing. Order. But John says, do not have agape, do not have love for the world. Anyone who has love for the father does not have a love for the world. So we have to take a step back here and figure out what is the love of the father? And he uses the different word agape versus the philos to describe what the love of the father is. And I'm not talking about your earthly father. I'm talking about your heavenly father, whom some of you you may not know. But the love of the father, the agape, is that love that's unwavering. It's that love that's unconditional. It's relentless. It's it's not based on how you look. It's not based on your pedigree. It's not based on what you can give. It's not based on what you have not give. It's not based on how much money you have. It's not based on what you have in the bank. It's not based on what you've done for me lately. It's a love that pursues you relentlessly, relentlessly, over and over, and passionately, and it does not stop. Agape does not sleep. Whatever in your life that you've gotten to the point where you feel like I've thrown this thing away. You look in the mirror some days, we get up, and we feel like, well, I don't got it all. Your love, the love of the Father says, you have it all. Agape. Your heavenly Father says, I love you. I love you because you are who I made you to be. You may not feel victorious, but I've made you stand in victory. You may not have much joy, but I've given you joy. I've given you hope. I've given you peace. I've given you love. That's the agape of the Father is that it pursues you consistently over and over and over again passionately, and it will not stop. It will not stop. Will you let him love you? That's the problem is we're we're still running. John says if you have a gap A for the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Because the, the reason that you're chasing validation out here is because you do not have validation up here. And that's simply what he's saying. And in verse 16, he's going to go on to define what, what love the love of the world is. And he tells us, he identifies this in three parts. He says it's the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. He then, and remember this statement, he says, lust is not of the Father. Remember that statement. Lust is not of your heavenly Father, and that's very important. Lust is not of your heavenly Father father. John identifies that the love of the world is lust. And we're going to take a look at this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And I want you to see this play out here. Genesis 3, 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. God sets everything into motion, and and he made Adam and Eve in perfection. He made, he made them in perfection. He put them into a, a perfect environment, and he gives them one rule. One rule to follow, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, Adam and Eve did the very thing that God told them not to do, and at that moment, right before they ate of that fruit, the entire fate of humanity hung in the balance. And so everything that's wrong in your life, sickness, pain, tragedy, broken relationships, we all can point it back to that decision that happened in the garden. But the issue with the decision is that there are two people that made this decision, okay? And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible and I, I begin to get into the text. And you read it, you get in with the character, you go, why? Why? You know, it's like my kids sometimes. You know, when they do some things and, and I may react explosively but I just logically want to know why, why, what, what in your mind, why, why did you think that taking the cup and putting it over your sister's head full of water, that wasn't going to result in something that everybody's not, she's crying, I'm screaming at you and you're crying, why, why, and, and I say this with, I know a lot of expression, but I, I logically want to know what is going on in your brain. Why? Why? Now, now, here's here's what ends up happening is is you had two people that were involved in this situation, this scenario. Both people made the same decision, but they came to that decision by two different reasons. Second Timothy chapter two verse fourteen tells us that Adam, point blank, knew. He knew. He knew point blank that what he was doing was wrong. He knew from the start to the finish. And that's why the scripture places the entire blame at the foot of Adam. It doesn't put it on Eve. Adam knew he was wrong from the start to the finish. Okay. But the Bible says, hear me now. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. She got hoodwinked. She got bamboozled. The wool got pulled over her eyes. She got backed over the head. And so the way they came about this decision was from two different bases. Adam was not deceived. Eve was honestly deceived, and in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, what we do, and this is why I like this particular passage, is we get some insight into logically what was, what what was she processing? What was actually going on in her mind, in her heart, as, as the entire fate of humanity was held in the balance. Right now, you and I are sitting in here, right now, because this woman, do I eat it? Or don't I eat it? Do I eat it? Or don't I eat it? And she ate it. But what what was she thinking? And scripture goes in to say this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it tasted good. It appealed to her appetite. The lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eye. It looked good. The optics looked good. It appealed to, it it, it appeared how you would want it to look. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. Notice what's happening here. There's a transition here. It shifted from just looking to, from tasting to actually being something beyond just a look and a taste. There's a shift that takes place. Okay. And once that shift takes place, what it appeals to is Eve thinks she's missing out on something. She thinks she's lost something. There's something that she does not have. And this is the tragedy in the entire of the events is how Eve got She got duped because they're placed into the garden in this perfect state of perfection and perfect environment. They themselves are perfect, but yet there's something in her, something within her that Satan was able to tap into and say, you're not quite there. There's something, there's a higher wisdom, a higher knowledge, a higher calling that she, that the, the serpent got in there and was able to try to articulate to her that you're missing something. Hear this now. And if you don't take anything this afternoon, take this. The ultimate problem with lust is not solely on the fact that it's a longing or yearning for something that's forbidden. The root issue with lust is it's longing for a, and having a continual intense desire for something that cannot satisfy you. That's the issue. The lust of the father Lust is not of the Father. I told you, remember that statement. Lust is not of the Father. God never intended or did he ever set up you and I to be chasing, never obtaining, searching but never finding, hungry but never being filled. It's always been the intent of your heavenly Father that when you find something, it satisfies you. When you find the right thing, that you are fully satisfied. It's like watching your children beg for chips, a bag of chips when you didn't make them a homemade meal from scratch. Homemade meal from scratch. Well-rounded, fills them up, and they beg you for chips. Bible says, this is why Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse verse. 37 the bible says that 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 jesus okay on the last great day of the feast bible says he stood up and said if any man thirst let him come if any man thirst let him come now understand that the feast that they're celebrating at that time is the feast of tabernacles and how we do it in the in in the west is a little bit different than how they do in the east so in the west you come over for thanksgiving you may stay a couple hours i'm talking to you jordan we may eat and we may fellowship, and I may look at your shoes, but after a couple of hours, you ain't got to go home, but you got to get out of my house. That's that's how we do in the West. Okay, you know, yeah. You, you you know, the 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 holiday is one day. But in the East, understand this, 7, John 737, read this. In the last day, that means that there were multiple days. That's how they do it in, the, in, the, in, in biblical times. Okay, And so in the East, when they have a holiday, okay, it's multiple days. It's, it's an entirety of a week. And so get this down. I've, I've touched on this before, so you, you guys have heard me talk, touch on this. Okay, Get this. On the first day, you know what they do at a party? They ate it up. They drank it up. They danced it up. They laughed it up. They partied it up. But they came back the second day. You know why? Because whatever they did on the first day did not sustain them. So they came back the second day. They ate it up. They danced it up. They partied it up. They laughed it up. But they came back day three. You know why they came back day three? Because day one and day two, it didn't sustain them. So they came back day three, and they did the same thing. Okay? But you know what? The the Jewish Feast of Tabernacle runs approximately seven to eight days. So they came back day four, day five, day six, day seven. Finally to the point where the Bible says, on the last day. Jesus stood up. <laughs> had you had enough? You keep coming back here and you're not satisfied. You've shown up. Okay, whatever you had the first day didn't satisfy you. All those laughs from day two, they didn't last to day one, day three. All those laughs from day three, it didn't last to day four, and so on. Finally, Jesus stands up in the middle of the whole thing and says, If any man thirst, come. Let me tell you here, in some of you in your lives, he's standing up right now, and he's asking you, have you had enough? Because some of you in here are thirsty. And you're hungry for something more. Something more. And he's still standing up today, today. He's asking if any man thirst. Solomon says this. He says this in Ecclesiastes 1, 8 through 9. He says, All things are full of labor. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter with it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. The thing which has been is that which will be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. He says there's no new thing under the sun. Nothing is new under the sun. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes calls it vanity of vanities. And what vanity of vanities is, it's, it's, it's a, what you call a grammatical term. We call it a superlative. What a superlative is it's a grammatical term that uses that is used to express either the highest of the highs or the lowest of the lows So we have them in the scripture we call them the king of kings and the what? the Lord of Lords okay the holy of holies okay but when Solomon articulates, he calls it everything that we do and we chase and we look to fulfill our senses with he calls it vanity of vanities. In other words, it's the pointless of the pointless. It's absolutely nothing. It amounts to nothing. It, it doesn't, it's it's a nothing of the nothing is what he's articulating. He describes it like, he says, it's it's like chasing the wind. It's futile. Okay. I believe that God allowed this man to actually be in a state in which he had enough wealth and everything imaginable. And God allowed him actually to run this thing to the ends of it and to figure out There's no point in it. But the conclusion of the matter is that many of us are caught in this cycle of being easily pleased by things that cannot satisfy And what happens, and here's the trap, is we keep returning over and over to those things that do not satisfy. Meanwhile, your Heavenly Father, your Savior, is standing to the right of you with something that will satisfy you forevermore. That's the madness and lust. It's that it's a continually returning to something that is not satisfying. The biggest thing. The biggest problem that we have is not that we want too much. The biggest problem that we have is that we actually want too little. Let's stand. Let's stand. Be short. During the, I told the story before, but it's it's a fascinating story. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with this. During the 14th century. A man by the name of Renald the Third was a duke in the country of what we call Belgium, and as a result of a violent quarrel with his brother, his brother whose name was Edward, okay, Edward successfully revolted against him and he took the throne. He took his he took his took his kingdom. When Edward did capture Renal, he built a room around him, and in this room he, he had a door and he had a window, and and within the door and the window, the door was unlocked, the window was unlatched, and and. He promised Renaud that if he could leave the room, he could have back his kingdom. He could have back his domain. He could have everything back if he could actually walk out that door. You say, what is going on then? The problem with this is that Renaud was extremely overweight. He could not fit through the door himself. And what his brother Edward would do is every single day, he would send him a plate of delicious food. Every day he sent him this food over and over and over again. Edward knew that his brother could not control his appetite. Lust, the enslavement to something only provided that minimal satisfaction. Satisfaction. The problem is that it it gives us temporary satisfaction, instant gratification, but it's only temporarily. And as you can imagine, every single day he sent these foods to his brother over and over and over again to his brother grew larger and larger. Anytime that somebody actually accused Edward of being cruel, he would turn to them and say, my brother is not enslaved. He can walk out of that room anytime he wants. I've not even put a lock on the door. There's no lock on the windows. My brother has all of the liberty he needs to simply walk through that door. Renaud stayed in that room for 10 years. And it was, he wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. His health was so ruined within a year, he died. A prisoner to his own appetites. And as I said before, here's the issue. The ultimate problem with lust, it's not about wanting too much. The ultimate problem is we are satisfied with too little. That man sat In a prison, he sat in bondage, being satisfied by a few good meals, never realizing that the entirety of his kingdom was at stake. And if he could discipline himself to deny himself that the entire kingdom, and what he did is he settled for the the meats on a platter. When he owned the, the, the cattle on all the hills that were all over there, he settled for a couple slices of bread when he owned granaries that were all across outside of his walls and what i'm trying to tell somebody in here this afternoon is god has put before you the kingdom what are you settling for he's giving you power he's giving you authority but what we've done is, is, is if we, we've, we've cheapened this thing down to, to checking the box, to showing up to church a couple times a week, to, to saying a couple short prayers, to, 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 to having a form of godliness. We've been satisfied too much. Some of us, you've been satisfied with sin. You've been satisfied in these situations. You've been, you've been, you've been satisfied with just getting by. James is, James 4, 2 through 3, James is, you lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have. Ye obtain. not You fight war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. The reality is that some of you in here in situations and states in which the one night stand or the fling you had is is it's good for that twenty four hours, but you're still lonely. You're finding temporary satisfaction in the bottle, but you're still thirsty. The drugs, the cigarettes, they give you high for a moment. But you come down and you need another one. Meanwhile, your Heavenly Father is standing in. He's asking you to desire greater things. What I'm asking somebody is this afternoon desire greater things. I'm going to open up this altar. And I only want you to come if you're hungry for something more. If you say, I'm dissatisfied with being dissatisfied. I'm fed up with being fed up. Tired of being tired. I'm sick of being sick. I'm sick of being, I'm sick of being in the same situation over and over again. Consistently craving, consistently wanting. That is not of the Father. Your Father never designed you at all to be consistently craving after something. Only to leave you empty only to to search for it, and it still leaves you hungry. It still leaves you thirsty. It still leaves you wanting more. This altar's open. I'm going to pray, my prayer is going to be for each and every person at this altar, that that hunger and that thirst that you have
1: opens you up
0: away. to a new, a deeper, so use, more profound relationship with Jesus Christ. Away. I'm going to pray that, that the temporary things that, that are, are in your midst that are allowing away. you to be temporarily satisfied. So come to the point where you get dissatisfied with being dissatisfied. We're going to pray that, that, that after today, there's a passion that's ignited in you for the things that he's holding in his right hand, which are pleasures forevermore, that in the midst of any circumstance going forward, you can still have peace. Peace is not about what you have in your bank account or what you do or don't have in the bank account. Peace is not about whether you have a job or not. Peace is not not necessarily about whether your health is maintained or sustained or not. But the peace of the Father transcends. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Any circumstance, a situation that you can come against. Peace.